Hi, I'm Michael Cashew. And I'm Adi Cashew, and you're listening to The WAG Podcast. This podcast is about health, wellness, and personal development. Each episode is a short conversation between Adi and I on a single topic with actionable steps. We cover everything from food, mindset, fitness, and relationships. We started WAG because of the way health and fitness changed our lives, so we hope to share a tool or two that helps you along your way. Hello, and welcome to the WAG Podcast. This is Michael Cashew, and I'll be your host today. This is the first episode of a series of shows that we are doing highlighting WAG coaches and staff members. This first one is with Taylor Lump. Taylor was one of our very first coaches at WAG. She's a 64-kilo Olympic weightlifter. She's a multi-time national medalist. She even won the Arnold Classic this year. Professionally, she was an FBI agent for four years, starting at age 19, which is super badass, and you bet we talk about that on the show. And in this episode, we start out talking about how she originally found WAG, why she wanted to join, what it was like in the early days, what it was like working with a D in the early days, how things have changed over time. We talk about what she is most proud of in the way that she has changed her relationship with food and what she's done in her nutrition. We talk about her transition from the FBI into WAG, how she went from being a coach to becoming our COO and CFO. And then we finish off talking about some of the biggest lessons and insights she's learned by working with hundreds or possibly even thousands of clients right now. And towards the end, she talks about some stuff that is kind of intuitive, but it was a really big aha moment for me. And so I think it's going to be really valuable for you. So without further ado, please help me welcome Taylor Lump. What's up, Taylor? Not much. How are you? Good. It's great to have you on the podcast. Um, I thought we would start out by having you just share a little bit about your journey of finding WAG. How did you originally find it? I found WAG back in 2014. I was probably six months to a year into weightlifting and Olympic weightlifting. So it's a weight class sport and it became evident that I didn't really understand how to cut for meats and didn't really understand how to control my body weight. So I saw a D on Instagram and a D was a weightlifter Mm -hmm. and we were in the same weight class and um, I reached out to her for help just to make weight, easily maintain my weight when I was training. So 2014, she started it November of 2014. So you must have seen her post almost as soon as she started the company. Pretty much, yeah. And I was following a D prior to wag even mm-hmm. being a thing were y'all in the same weight class at the time that's why because mm-hmm. we were i was uh she's a lot better than me at that time and <laughs> at i at the time i didn't care for that yeah <laughs> cool and so you signed up was she your coach she was okay what were you like as a client at the first i mean i had that same initial like a lot of clients that i was just like freaked out i can't do this this is so overwhelming it's very difficult i never i didn't know like I knew nothing when it was like, you need to have X amount of protein. I didn't even know where to begin. Like I'd never, I'd seen a food, a nutrition label, obviously, but I'd never spent any time looking at one. So really the first probably like four to six weeks was just a crash course in like, what, what is food? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's probably annoying. I, I had moments of freaking out and being like, I don't feel good. I feel faint and just drama. And he was super patient. But um, once I got it, 
it was it was pretty easy. Mm-hmm. So, what was it like? Like, how did you check in with her exactly? Oh, this was back in the day, and I sent my check in to what was it? It was, I think it was working against gravity at gmail.com. Okay, and somehow it would get filtered down to a D, and I checked in on this kind of looking at it now, you know, what, six years later, it's like very clunky spreadsheet that had this weird graphic of uh, like a globe and then working against gravity over top of it. I mean, now it's comical. We laugh about it, but I I had the OG spreadsheet. So what did you think of that experience at the time? I mean, like I said, I knew nothing about nutrition. I really had nothing to compare it to at all. But I mean, it, it worked really well for me. It, I saw results very quickly. Um, it was exciting to see my body changing. And this was also happening in tandem with me training really for the first time in my life too. So my body was like, I was getting muscle and I was getting leaner. So for me, it was really just a radical transformation on like how I viewed food and even how I viewed my body. Mm-hmm. What was the D like at that time? Um, well, a D forced friendship on me at that time. I don't know like who was assigning clients at that time or how I ended up with her, but like she pretty quickly started like messaging me on Facebook Mm -hmm. just about lifting or about, you know, whatever is going on in the weightlifting community. It makes me wonder, does she, did she like search and Instagram stalk every single member or how did she know you were in the same weight class? I'm assuming... She I, just knew your name kn- somehow? No, I was nobody. I have no idea. I mean, I'd like to think I'm a special case, and I was just mm. very interesting. Cool. I mean, I d- it was probably in the questionnaire. I can't even remember the questionnaire we had at that time, but it was probably in there that I said I was a 64-kilo weightlifter. Wait, I think I think the picture... Did the picture that you sent have anything to do with it? I mean, that... That was part of it. <laughs> At the time, I was I was dating a very good weightlifter, so yeah, that was definitely. I think that made me a little more interesting. Yeah, I forgot about that part. <laughs> <laughs> um, what were your like nutrition struggles at the time? I don't. I mean, dude, I was like such a fatty. Well, like I just I'm I eat the same way now. Like I worked for my car at that time, so I was like Panda Express, uh, McDonald's, Chipotle. That was like my standard meals and like spoonfuls of peanut butter. I don't know that I've, I don't know if they were struggles. I just didn't know what I was doing and that's the food I'd always eaten. Mm-hmm. So, so you still eat the same beige style food. <laughs> that's a running joke at WAG. It is. I haven't had Panda Express in a minute though. That's unfortunate. I know. I, are Panda's there any great. in Austin? I have no idea. Yeah, you wouldn't know. What's, what have been like the biggest things that you've changed over the years in the way that you eat? Or it could even be the way, like your relationship with food. It definitely has gone through um, ebbs and flows. I think that, and I, and I actually think this is, is a very uh, common experience when you start tracking food, it can become a little bit compulsive. And if you don't know exactly, you know, what's in the food you're eating, Um, you're either like tracking or you're not. And it's this like kind of yo-yo situation of like, well, if I don't know exactly what these macros are in this meal, like if you go out, then you're just going to like eat everything, like Mm -hmm. say YOLO and then like deal with consequences tomorrow. So I definitely went through some phases of that where it was a big struggle and it created a lot of anxiety for me because I was like, oh my gosh, I've like forgotten how to feed myself in a way that's intuitive and reasonable without strictly tracking. Because I would go on those like, I don't want to call it a bender, but like I would kind of like go off the plan and not track for a while and gain weight 
and get very frustrated that I couldn't really control nutrition. I kind of like lost touch with my body a little bit, but I'm definitely past that at this point. And I'd say for the last like two to three years, I go through phases of tracking strictly kind of in coordination with training and where my training is. And then uh, seasons of not really tracking, but kind of like eating sort of the same foods, but maybe allowing myself a glass of wine most nights or going out to eat more. And I've been able to do that now because of all the things that I understand about food. With my, my body composition will take a hit, which I'm willing to take to take that kind of like step back from strip, strict tracking. But my weight will maintain within probably two to four pounds mm-hmm. of where I am when I'm strictly tracking. That's amazing. So yeah, it's been, it's an evolution. And I would, I would say like, uh, naturally I am kind of a pretty good moderator. I'm not like too extreme when it comes mm-hmm. to a lot of things. That's so nice. that, yeah, <laughs> it works in my favor. Yeah. We talk about what you're describing as like the holy grail of nutrition to be able to eat intuitively, <laughs> but still feel like you're quote unquote on track and still maintaining the progress that you've worked so hard to get. When you look back, what are you most proud of? Like what, what's the biggest thing that you've overcome that when you look back, you're just like really proud of in your nutrition? I'm really proud of where I am now because a lot of people go through that phase that I described of not being able to not track. And you really like it. I don't want to call it disordered eating because I, I don't think it is, but it feels kind of that way. And it feels like a big disconnect from your body and, and kind of like si- sifting through that discomfort and getting to a point where I can be in touch with my body, like my hunger cues, satiety levels, being aware of like what foods really do make me happy that I don't want to compromise on. And also being in a place of being like, some things are just absurd and I'm not going to eat them. Like mm-hmm. if I look at, there's like this certain kind of honey bun that has like 60 grams of fat and they're so good. What? I'm, yeah. I'm that just like, has to be good. It is. But but I, I can't eat it. Like out of principle, I can't eat it. <laughs> it's just not worth it. So then like being able to say that and be like, okay, that's fine. Like I don't need I don't to eat that thing. I don't even know if a Cinnabon has 60 grams of fat. I've never looked at the macros oh, on a man. Cinnabon. Yeah. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine myself eating one of those, but I want maybe a bite. Yeah. I might have a bite of some. <laughs> like that but you want to eat the whole thing like it's like a gas station i have it in my head i don't know exactly what it's called yeah it's a gas station item oh my god (laughs) uh so one of the things i find most fascinating about you is that you were in the fbi at age 18 um i got in as an intern at 19 and 19 okay Mm -hmm. so i don't know you're in middle school and high school what what do you think you're gonna be when you grow up i was gonna be a spy wow (laughs) yeah where did that come from movies yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I you grew was, up in Virginia where the FBI headquarters is, correct? It is in Quantico. Or, yeah, Quantico, Virginia. And so was that a factor at all? Like they're nearby or? No, I just like always really wanted to have an exciting life. Wow. <laughs> so, so how, yeah, how, how did it evolve? I mean, everyone told me that that was like wanting to be a rock star. And people told me I couldn't do it. And I remember my advisor um, I, in college was just like, you're a dumb kid. And he told me, like, don't bother. Like, you're not going to get a job with the Bureau. So when I was 19, I applied. I was using McDonald's Wi-Fi and sitting in McDonald's by myself, and I applied for the internship, and I got it. The The process was pretty rigorous because you have to you do have to get a full security clearance, which means, like, I had a full background check done. They, like, interview, like, 50 people in your life. People, you don't even give I've them. I've been interviewed. Oh, have you? Yeah, for other people. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, I have not been interviewed for someone, but being the one being interviewed, it feels like 
quite the violation. I can't imagine. Because you don't <laughs> give them everybody. Like some people you give them their name, but some people they kind of like go and find and I get calls and they're like, hey, like some dude from the FBI came by to like talk to us about you. I said good things. <laughs> but yeah, I did. I had to do that. And then I had to take a polygraph. And like the whole game with a polygraph is they want to make you feel like you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. So I was sure I failed it. Like I left and I told my mom, I was like, there's no chance that I'm getting this. But I did. So Amazing. So yeah. where were you when you found out? Um, I was walking across the drill field at Virginia Tech. It's just, if you've ever been attacked, the drill field, everyone knows what the drill field is. And I was like in the middle and they called me. I was like, really? Are you sure? Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, we're sure. And I was like, okay. So yeah, I had a bunch of like little orientations and stuff, but it was it was really exciting because what like feels like you get into that secret club, and I was at nineteen, I just was like over the moon excited. That is so cool. Yeah. So you're nineteen. You're with what I'm imagining are a bunch of like very aggro type A men for mm-hmm. the vast majority. What was that like for you? As an intern, it wasn't it wasn't too bad. There, I was like I was so young. No, I I probably wasn't even picking up on anything if there was it any weirdness there. But once I had a, a real job at the bureau, and um, I was working with some men, you know, as my equals, and we were teammates, there were definitely times that I had to um, assert myself. Mm-hmm. There were times that I was like hit on very inappropriately in professional settings. There were times I was just dismissed or looked over because I was a young female. There was a near the end when I left, I was regularly like leading a team of like six to eight men, all at least 10 years older than me, like out in the field. Mm -hmm. And there were definitely times that people did not want to listen to me. And so I just kind of had a reputation of being a hard ass, like. I would throw my badge at people and throw. <laughs> I, there was a lot of drama. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was probably a little too young and a little too immature to be given that much responsibility and under that much stress. Mm-hmm. I cared a lot about what we were doing. And I, I don't know that anyone else on the team cared as much as I did. Why did you care so much? It's just who I am. Like, I can't, like, do anything halfway. Like, if I'm going to devote 40 hours a week to something or, I'm like, it's a serious thing for me, like, I am all in fully, like, it's the most important thing in the world. And I definitely, like, I wanted to do important work. Like, I worked, you know, quote-unquote matters of national security. So, like, they were important. Like, I worked Mm -hmm. cases that ended up on the news. I, I worked cases that, like, had big impacts, not just for, like, the subject that we were working, but other cases around the country and around the world. So it it felt really, really important to me. Mm. And do you always remember being that way? Oh, yeah. Like my mom says that like when I was three, like if I was coloring something, like it was serious and you were not to bother me. (laughs) So, I mean, this is just, this is in my DNA. Yeah. Are either of your parents that way? Maybe not. Uh, My dad a little bit. I don't know necessarily to the extent that I am. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think that are the biggest things that you learned or skills that you developed during that job? Well, looking back on it, at the time, I handled my st- stress levels terribly, and I didn't even recognize how stressed I was. Towards the end of my time with the Bureau, I had um, prescriptions for ulcers in my mouth. Mm-hmm. I, like My mouth would be swollen all of the time, and I would ha- like before I would get up to like 
speak in front of the team or give a briefing, I would have to just like rub my whole mouth with Orogel so that like I wouldn't cry because like mm. my eyes would water so much from just the stinging. Wow. Um, Damn. Yeah. I would get stressed and like five minutes later I'd have a raging nosebleed. I had terrible nightmares about just cases going wrong or just like things wow. going sideways. And, and I knew I was under stress. I just didn't know how much. Mm-hmm. And so now I will still get those symptoms occasionally if I'm under a lot of pressure. And now I learned, I have learned that is my body's reaction to stress. And just then I know I need to take a step back from whatever I'm doing. And I think that's easily the most valuable thing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So you're 19, 20 years old. When, do you, when did you start weightlifting? I started lifting, I was probably 22. Got it. So you're in the FBI, you get a nutrition coach, you're working with a D, she forces friendship on you. How do you eventually go to getting a job at WAG? Well, Adi and I were talking on Facebook all day, every day. And she knew that my, she knew that lifting was really important to me. And she knew that my job was really hard on me. And the two didn't align. Going to work every day, chasing bad guys, driving fast, like doing this high stress stuff is just a massive adrenaline dump. And then going to the gym and trying to like lift as much as you can, it's just, it's not a thing. It doesn't work. And so I knew that if I wanted to like really take a swing at weightlifting, the work would have to give. And so that was a big part of it. And that, that job was, it was killing me. Like it was, it was taking my soul really. Um, and she knew that and she was just like, hey, like things are going really well here. I really need help. You want to help me? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, yes, <laughs> I definitely do. I mean, it, and it, it did come with some like hesitation because the Bureau is kind of like once you're in, you're in and you can kind of work your way up. And that it was my dream to, to like have this really exciting career. Mm-hmm. But I kind of looked at it as I can, all, weightlifting has a shelf life for me. Like, I'm only young for so long. I can only compete at a high level for so long. And the Bureau is not going anywhere. So I'll just try this. And I can always try to go back to the Bureau mm-hmm. if it's meant to be. Awesome. So I'm, I'm kind of like uncovering a new layer that I hadn't noticed before. So for all of you listening, Taylor is a coach. She's been a coach for a very long time. She also oversees finance, legal. She does HR. So a lot of the what are typically like the most uncomfortable or biggest responsibilities in a company. And I've always wondered like where, because you don't have a finance background, you don't have a legal background or an HR background, but you've just taken these things on and just had a lot of courage. You know, we've had a lot of conversations and I know you've been afraid or felt like an imposter at times, but you don't really show it and you just keep figuring things out. And I'm wondering, like, it would seem to me having like super high stakes FBI type of work and going to a nutrition coaching company, even if it's the biggest responsibilities at that company, those pale in comparison to your own job. How, how much do you think that affected the way that you work today? A lot. Because, I mean, there were things that we were working there. I mean... There were days we go to work and we were afraid. There, they, there were days that we we knew we were working something really high stakes that could have rippling consequences, and like I don't. There's nothing that comes to mind where I'm like, yeah, we could have screwed that day up so bad someone would have died. Mm-hmm. But that was never something you you didn't know would happen. You know what I mean? Like it, it always felt like it could happen. And I had a job. But then, like when your phone rang 
even if it's Saturday night, you need to answer it and it could be important. And uh, like we really did have emergencies and kind of like this job, like sure, we have our emergencies and sure we like have our big stressful days, but they're not, it's not like that. Like it's not going to end up on the news. It's not going to end up like the president's not reading about anything that we're doing. Mm -hmm. So not yet. Not yet. (laughs) He needs us. He needs us. (laughs) <laughs> we won't touch that. <laughs> but yeah, I think probably it. this is not as higher stakes as other sure, things. Sure, Yeah. So you've had as much or more contribution to like what WAG stands for and its values as anyone on the team. Uh, in your perspective, from your perspective, what is it that WAG really stands for? What are we all about? I think just freedom, like freedom from the stress of food and like not understanding food and not having um, control of food and freedom from um, expectations around the way your body should look or the way it should be. Yeah. Just like freedom from the whole thing. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I I think that's a great answer. I love the term nutritional freedom because Mm -hmm. of all of the reasons that you just gave. I think Going back to the intuitive eating piece that we talked about earlier, I think what every human being really wants when it comes to food is to feel free. They want to be able to enjoy what they want to enjoy and not have to worry about it. And what we do is we teach people very concrete skills and we help them build habits and we help them to shift their mindset so that they can really achieve that freedom. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. And what what are we not? What are some things that are maybe mistake or misjudgments about us or different things like that what are we not we're not dogmatic um we're not prescriptive Mm -hmm. we're not yeah i mean the biggest thing for me is dogmatic there's so much dogma in nutrition and i have to watch my own head and the way that i speak because i think that you can have your own like personal dogma like your own personal rules that work for you but I think it's very important to recognize that like what works for me is not going to work for you. And I don't ever want to like push my dogma onto you. Mm-hmm. So that's really, to me, that's the most important thing. Cause I see, I don't see that a lot in the nutrition space. And I think that it's detrimental to people. And that's why so many people kind of stay in this place of like, I don't know what to do because like, I'm supposed to be keto, but I'm also supposed to be this. Mm-hmm. And it's just a lot of noise. It's not useful. Right. Yeah, without fail, when I tell people what I do or what we do, they're they're always like, okay, so like what kind of diet do y'all do? Yeah. Are y'all low carb or (laughs) keto? Like what what is it? And I'm like, well, none of it. Yeah, it's (laughs) a little more complicated than that. Or or they see a DRI eating like ice cream or something that they think is quote unquote unhealthy and that just does not compute for them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hate that stuff. Yeah. But I also don't want to sucked into that conversation with a random person to try to to explain. Unless I've had a couple drinks, then I might make that mistake. It's the worst. Yeah. I saw an Instagram post. I think Adi showed this to me a couple days ago. It was made by this restaurant near where I grew up, which is in Louisiana. Yeah, you've been there. Two, three stoplights, 5,000 people. Um, Ideas spread there very, very slowly, about 10, 15 years after they've, 
just spread most other places. And, but the social media post says it had like a steak and some mushrooms and some asparagus. And it says macros friendly. And I, like my mind was so blown <laughs> that they know the word macros. So my thought is like, okay, how much we eat is starting to like the quantity, the whole quantity thing is starting to really spread far and wide. People are starting to understand this a little bit. You know, for a long time, we've talked about quality, like should it be low carb, high carb, low fat, high protein, whatever. People haven't talked about quantity nearly mm -hmm. as much. Uh, and I think that's a very valuable thing to be spreading. So my question to you is, have you noticed over the past four or five years, have you noticed the trend in people's knowledge when they come in? Are people, do people know more or tend to know more about nutrition? And if so, do you feel like that's helping them be more successful quicker? <clears throat> I find it tends to be if people do know more about nutrition, they are coming with a lot of kind of like that, that word again, like dogma, a lot of like very strict preconceived notions about this is the right way to do it. And, you know, this is the only way to do it. I think people generally have a little more awareness around calories now because a lot of restaurants too, you're seeing, they'll put the calorie count on the menus, mm -hmm. which is, is and isn't useful, I think. The thing that I see the most though, especially with women, is just this like, I do not eat more than 100 carbs a day kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. And there, and every, not every woman, I'm, it's hyperbole, but like a lot of women are like, and I don't tolerate carbs. I can't eat carbs at all. But really when you like drill down on it, I'm like, okay, well, what is a carb? They don't really know. They like, they just think it's pasta. It's like, well, yes, and. Right. So I'd say by and large, if you're just getting kind of that like, junk science nutrition that's floating around it's really not useful because people people really double down on it and really want to st like stick to those rules even when they've hired a coach right well and, and something that's been really present for me the past few years is the fact that there is no shortage of knowledge in the world or information mm -hmm. every every single word on our knowledge base when you sign up to be a client with with us you can find somewhere on google for free but the the magic of what we do the magic of having accountability in general is not about the information it's about having someone to go through that experience with to actually hold you accountable um, someone that just helps you remain motivated to continue building new habits mm-hmm Hundred percent. Yeah, there's. If you want to coach yourself, you can get all the information for free. Mm -hmm. It's all out there. I mean, good luck weeding through it all. Mm -hmm. But yeah. So another thing you're a big proponent of is identifying people's personality traits and then treating them differently accordingly. Mm -hmm. Because you and I, we could not. We're, we're so different in so many ways. I'm a complete rebel. You're a complete like. Well, I don't know. I'm seeing this more adventurous side of you, but you're more of a rule follower <laughs> yeah. and more of an obliger, right? Mm -hmm. You and I need to be coached differently. And so the way that you coach is is speaking and communicating to people according to the personality traits that you're seeing. Do you see certain personality traits leading to success more often? Ooh, um, no. I actually think... Uh, the whether you're going to be successful or not 
has nothing, well, I, maybe not nothing to do with your personality, but it has to do with just how much pain you're in. Because I, I think some people come to us and, and they're like in a little bit of pain. And when I say pain, I mean discomfort in their body, discomfort in, you know, how they look, how they move. They're not like running as fast as they'd like to or whatever. You know, they're, that's the pain I'm talking about. And they're in like a little bit of pain, but it's not enough to like really rock their world, like to really like change their kitchen and change their habits and, you know, start eating breakfast every day and like opening my fitness pal every day. They're not there yet. But when you get people who are like seriously in a ton of pain and they're like, I am so unhappy, this change needs to be made urgently. And it's, and often that's comes in tandem with like a, a deadline. Like I need to make weight or I need to, like I have an event or whatever. That's when I can kind of be like, okay, this person is actually going to create enough change. Yeah. That is so huge. That is seriously <laughs> huge. I'm, I have so many thoughts running through my head right now. Like, first off, uh, my mind immediately goes to addiction, and addicts or alcoholics have there's such a low success rate. Period. But if there's just like a, a bender here, a bender there, and the consequences aren't that great, but it's just like a low level misery, mm -hmm. very low likelihood that something's going to change. If there's like an arrest or a divorce or a major like legal incident, something like that, there, it's, a, it's much more likely that they'll have this wake up call. So the the thing that i'm thinking is like okay someone's listening to this and that make that can make sense but if they're not in that spot what could they do what what i think can be a really useful exercise for anyone listening and i'm kind of talking to myself too because i think we have to remind ourselves of these things repetitively if because we get off track sometimes but you may you may only be feeling a small amount of pain you think but if you ask yourself, what is the impact that not having your, we're, we're going to use nutrition as, as the example here, but this can be applied to any area of your life. What's the impact of not having this dialed in or not being the way that you want to be right now having on your life? What's the impact on my relationships? What's the impact on my sense of self-esteem and self-confidence? What are the second order consequences of that like well how do I show up at my job because of that level of confidence and if you really get to if when you really get a, become aware of all of the ways that not having your nutrition is really affecting you you could feel more of that motivation it could actually you could notice that there's actually more underlying pain than you are even aware of yeah, because people will also buffer the pain so that they don't have to be mindful of it. Mm -hmm. So there's distractions definitely part of that as well. Cool. This was great. That was a big aha. Uh -huh <laughs> Is there anything else you want to leave people with? Maybe they are just audience members uh, looking to make a change in their nutrition. Maybe they are new WAG members. Is there any other piece of advice or wisdom that you want to leave people with? Um, I guess to just kind of like close out the whole pain thing as you were talking, I was thinking too, like I think the reason it's it's so important for people to be in enough pain that they need to make a change um, is also because they need to be ready, like or they should be ready to, there's going to be, even more pain on that, like as you're making that change mm. into what you want to be. So like 
being prepared for that too. There's going to be so much discomfort with like learning a new way of eating, maybe letting go of like certain foods that aren't going to fit anymore and letting go of like certain habits and having to like change your day around. And maybe there's going to be conflict with your partner because you're doing this new thing and they don't want to do it or X, Y, and Z, you know? So just like if you are wanting to make a change and this also translates to any change you want to make in your life, you're in pain when you decide to make the change and that creating that change in your life will also create some short-term pain as well Mm -hmm. of just change. And so I think the, the takeaway from that is just know what to expect. Yeah. The, like I always think about one of my experiences doing seal fit, which is like a 50 hour, you're basically doing the hardest workouts you've ever done in your life for 50 hours straight. And there's one event, there's this nighttime ruck and they don't tell you how long it is. (laughs) It's pitch black. They don't tell you how long it is. You've been up for almost two days straight and they keep telling you, okay, it's just 400 more yards. And so you're expecting 400 more yards. You get, you get it into your mind, you're ready to roll. And then they break your heart. They say, okay, another half mile. And they just keep doing this over and over. And I've learned that Sometimes when it's completely unknown, there's no way to know what to expect. Just don't try to visualize what it's going to be because you can really you can really make it harder and more challenging for yourself. Mm-hmm. But with something like this, when WAG has worked with over 20,000 people, we know what to expect. People tend to be really challenged in the beginning because they're they're letting go of old behavior patterns. They they also are already feeling this discomfort and pain around how their body looks or feels. And so all of that is really present for them. And so you can expect for it to be challenging in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And if you go into it expecting that, we see that people are just more successful. Yeah. I mean, all good things are challenging. Mm-hmm. Cool. This was great, Taylor. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Stay in touch by signing up for our newsletter at workingagainstgravity.com or on Instagram at workingagainstgravity. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a five-star review, and refer a friend. We'll be back next week with another episode. Talk to you then.